It's time for the seventh. It's time for the Seventh Avenue. Why am I keep saying it that way? It's time for the seventh. How do you say it? Seventh Avenue Project. There you go. It is time for the Seventh Avenue Project. I'm your host Robert Polly, welcoming you to the program. Uh, you know, sometimes I put a lot of effort into chasing down and roping in interviewees who are right for this show. But every now and then, every once in a while, I just get lucky. Like when I met Ian Bell at a gathering of some mutual friends a couple of years ago. I found out right away he's a natural storyteller, someone interested in what makes people tick and how we humans make a go of it in life. And I uh, also found out that he had an interesting story himself. I only learned later that he is a singer-songwriter and that his passion for story has its fullest expression in his songs, which he is always writing and composing. As he relates on his website, when ideas come, they come. You don't question how or why. You just scramble to get it down on something quick. I write for myself first and foremost and then give it away to strange ears. Well, that clinched the deal for me. I knew I wanted Ian on the show. And after uh, more than a year of talking about it, we finally made it happen. I met up with him and his guitar in his backyard studio here in Santa Cruz for some music and conversation. And that's what we're going to hear today. And uh, we are going to start off, appropriately enough, with a song. This is the title track from Ian's 2011 EP, Chameleon Skin. Recovered, she left within a week And there was nobody you'd know Would place you in the bow And shoot you up into the air Straight, strong like an arrow Before your eyes Before your very eyes Ian You and I met at a party, and we got to talking, and one of the things we talked about was how we both like songs that tell stories. Yeah, that's right. I didn't even realize when we started talking that you were a songwriter. I only found that out afterwards. But after listening now to most of your recordings, I can see that you are a storyteller. Your grandmother took you under her wing, but a hard life and old age just held the feathers to keep falling. How much are the stories about you and how much are these people who you're just imagining? I think they're all true stories somewhere. They've all happened somewhere. And I I see other people's lives and I see part of my life. And I never like to give too much away about mine. But I, I piece it together. Before your eyes, before your very eyes. This is a story about someone who you're addressing as you in the song. 
whose mother in the opening verse is attempting suicide in a bathtub. Uh, and this, this song tells the story of this person growing up and who they've become. It's uh, about a fella that I knew. I got told the story once and stored it for maybe, I think, what am I now, maybe 20 years. And, and when I tried to expand my songwriting, this came once. It just came and I thought, well, yeah, I remember that story. Left the motherland when it became too intense And returned within a month With an awful lot less than you actually left with The gist of the story is that uh, it's about uh, how well you're shot out of the bow as a child. I believe that uh, parents' jobs are to shoot children out of the bow as best they possibly can and as far and as high to get them a good start in life. And the premise of the story is that he wasn't shot out of the bow that well. His mother wasn't interested, but his grandmother was. And she was aging, so she couldn't help. So he had to reinvent himself. So he you know, grew this chameleon skin and he could fit in anywhere, any place. And he carried on doing that his whole life. You look, you see how he blends in He has this very special skin Right before your eyes You've seen this gift of chameleon skin It's right before your eyes And I think it was a just a way that he could survive And I think a lot of people do it And it's sad, yet it's very creative that he thought, wait, well, hey, I can do this. I can be this, 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 or this. I guess he's doing something now, but... Friend of yours? Yes, I'd say a friend at one stage in my life. And if I had ever seen you again, you'd probably see me and just start changing. And we may have even been in the very same room You see me and start changing all too soon Before your eyes Before my very eyes If you look, you'll see how he blends in He has this very special skin Where are you from? I am from the pie crust of London. If you look at London on a map, it's, it's kind of circular. And I'm from the very crust of West London. And very close to Uxbridge. And it was the last tube stop on the Metropolitan Line. And I almost imagined the workers laying the tracks and getting to Uxbridge and having a break and thinking, lads, there's really no point in going on. Where were you on the social ladder? 
working class. And I still believe that I am working class now. Uh, the class system's a sad thing, I think, uh, that people put other people in classes, but they're working class. What did your dad do? My father was a carpenter, and then he stopped being a carpenter and worked at the airport, uh, Heathrow Airport, for uh, 30 years. So when we talk about the, I'm going to call it a suburb you grew up in, not well-to-do, obviously. No. Uh, if you left your car around, it would get scratched, the wheels would get stolen, and maybe set fire to after a week. But I've heard that it's getting nicer there now. Is this the sort of, you know, kind of bleak scene of sort of council flats and things yeah, there like was that? Yeah, a lot of them. Yeah. Yeah, like, well, there was a lot of them. and That's the public housing. Yes, yeah. a lot of council houses and... Uh, yeah, that was basically it. There was a, when as I was growing up as a child, there was this whole area called Concrete Jungle. It looked like it was uh, the buildings off of Star Wars, more or less. It, they were big, just big square concrete blocks, and there were three levels, and three families lived in uh, each level, you know, with one family in each level. But they, you could get lost there as a kid. And, and they was, there were these places where you could park your car. And you drive up a ramp, park your car, but nobody would because the cars would get just mashed up. Uh, they'd get stolen and there'd always be a car on fire. Was it more than the cars who were getting beaten up every now and then? Yeah, it was a pretty rough place. Yeah. It was a pretty rough place. So what was it like for you? Well, I just tried to dodge everything. How do you manage that? You become a fast runner. <laughs> You become a fast runner and you wear your shoes out quick. And your mother says, but I only bought you these last week. And you said, yeah, I've been running a lot, mum. From yobs of various kinds? From yobs. <laughs> yeah, I, was bes uh, I wear spectacles, so that in itself was a flag. Oh, yeah. So uh, they said, oh, look, that kid's got spectacles. Let's chase him. Did they know that he had the soul of a poet as well? No, not at that stage. That would have been dangerous. Yeah. I want to read a little something off of a biographical essay on your website. He attended, this is you, Rab's Farm Primary and Infant School at age 11, and he attended Evelyn Secondary School. By Bell's recollection, on the first day of secondary school, the fashion had changed over the summer holidays, and the less privileged children in the realms of fashion were left wearing flared trousers and hand-me-down clothes. Bell remembers thinking that this fashion mishap would undoubtedly pigeonhole him and a few others in the unpopular group of misfits. Perhaps his mother didn't get the memo about the stay-pressed trousers and Harrington jacket? He remembers looking at his watch and trying to work out how quick five years could really pass. Yeah, I remember that day. <laughs> I remember uh, that day. I'm thinking you wrote that. I did. I did write that. And, uh, and I signed it somebody else. <laughs> I'm interested the way you refer to yourself in the third person as Ian Bell. In your songs, most of them are addressed to another person. There's a you that you're singing to. Yes. That you're describing. So there's not a lot of me in no. your in your work or or in your writing, apparently. Well, one doesn't want to be big headed. One doesn't. No. <laughs> you don't want you don't want to you know when people just, who ever listen to it on my songs just say, oh, here he goes, he's singing about himself again. Uh, but there is an element of 
me in the songs. There, there's, there has to be. But uh, yeah, I remember that day though. The the uh, going to school that first day with a big flared uh, polyester trousers and my mother saying, "You'll be fine. You'll be fine." And it really uh, not so fine. There was a lot of Harrington jackets. <laughs> It was the start of the big two-tone uh, resurgence. Uh, what, what's a Harrington jacket, by the way? A Harrington jacket is a black jacket uh, that buttons at the top. It's got like a square collar, uh, elasticated uh, cuffs, and it's got a plaid lining. Uh-huh. And they called it a Harrington jacket. And if you didn't have that in this era that we're talking about. Yeah, and Frank Wright tasseled loafers (laughs) as well. And uh, white terry towel in socks. (laughs) Oh, boy. Um, So, Ian, I think I'll I'll play another song off of uh, one of your earlier CDs. And this one is called Springs. It's off, uh, is it your second CD, The Day You Stopped Dancing? Uh, Yes. Second CD. So let's listen to an excerpt of Springs. Well, they handed him to you at five and twenty minutes past two January Two years shy of the nineteen seventies You held him up into the light where they administered stitches And to your wife she'd been in the near room to death in a national health hospital He said, well, have a wonder bet, I got a son and heirs Head to wet, the cigars are in the car, the boys are waiting on me over when I return, I'll have a list as long as my arm for everything I did not achieve in life, but he will now for me. Oh, I could show you the mold. I could show you the mold. And at the age of five, he was a happy, healthy child. He played with his sister's toys, loved flowers and vases. Father wasn't happy at that, but his mother said he allowed to grow it just like any mother. She just loves a boy. Double his age to ten, and he's back at the doctor's for a checkup again. He says, Doctor, something not right with my boy's mind. The doctor said, Mr. G seems like a happy, healthy boy to me. He's got a good heart. Listen close, you can hear it beating louder. Oh, I could show you the more I could show you the more Why they said he's got springs on his toes Says he's got springs on his soul He said you don't choose who you love But you choose who you love so this one actually harks back to your school days. We were just talking about you growing up on the outskirts of London, what school was like. Yes, this is a song uh, that is about a kid that I went to school with. I was good friends with him. And uh, we went through school together. And then I heard from somebody that the kid was gay. And he had found a partner. And his family really weren't that happy about what was happening to their son. Father hung his head in shame, stamping out fires that burnt his name, and in the public houses you could hear a pin drop. 
come along sweet 16 in the back of the arms of the same best friend everything he owned flew out the window onto the frosted pavement the song's about acceptance and yet it's about hate really how mothers and fathers can hate their children for something that's out of their hands i mean whatever your sexuality is you don't choose that it's who you are and if everybody in the world understood that it would be a nicer place to live in uh, tell us more about what happens in the lyrics as the song goes on uh as the song goes on is he gets uh, just disowned by his father and uh him and his partner uh, adopt a child and they send a letter back to his parents saying we've adopted a child and at this stage his mother just drops everything and uh, she follows her apron strings to her child and she lives with the boys and their new adopted uh, child mm. and leaves the father mm. uh, on his own miserable and he dies alone and unhappy. You started with the story of someone you knew, something you'd heard, but you've obviously developed it in a kind of imaginative direction. Yes, I did. Uh, the main reason was because uh, I moved countries and couldn't find the guy who told me the story. <laughs> so I, lo I, I think the story's a, a good story, and I, I thought, well, what would you like to have if you said you could have the end of the story any way you want? And if you're a songwriter who tells stories, you can. So I, I thought, well, this is what I'd want to happen. That his mum accepts him. Yeah, she always did, but she was under the uh, rule of a, a dominant male. Uh. And uh, he wasn't having any of it. He, you know, made take all the pictures down of the son from the house. And What tended to happen to males where you grew up? Uh... Males that were gay? Just males in general. What was the, their pattern in life? Uh, I think when we left school, uh, we was under Thatcher's rule. And there wasn't a lot of uh, things to look forward to as far as jobs. And they developed a YTS scheme, which was a youth training scheme, which was... A good thing and a bad thing, they'd give you £25 a week to go to a company and learn to make tea or sweep up. The company got paid for having you and the government paid you £25. And that's how I got my first job. And I was very good at making tea. I made a lot of tea and I swept up a lot. But slowly, you became part of the team and uh, when your training scheme was over if you were lucky you got offered a job and that that's what happened but uh, I think a lot of males went down that route a lot of fellas did what, what did you imagine for yourself when you were growing up what did you picture what was your fantasy I don't really know whether I had one I wasn't playing any music it was like every kid for themselves. So you, if you could get a decent job, then get a decent job. And if you could hang on to it, hang on to it. And if you met somebody, 
good luck and you know then maybe one day you could get a place together and i think it's probably the same all over the world but it, there's just different uh sugar that's sprinkled on different countries well in some places like the united states kids are encouraged to dream big even if the odds of those dreams coming true are next to nil sure. right but you're saying you didn't even have those big wild ambitious fantasies no, I liken it to if the ship sank, you'd hang on to any little bit of wood you could in the water just to survive. I did go to college to be a sign writer or a sign painter, as they say in the States. And that really was like a black art. It was a dying trade then, but it was really, it was a really cool trade. But it was taught in college? And it was. And I wow. through the YTS scheme, I, I could go to college and learn how to be a, uh, a sign painter. So that was maybe the first real trade you sort of aimed at? It was. And it was great because we all went to college and then we all went to different companies. And throughout the different companies people had come back with different stories and some, I mean, we were, what was he, 16 years old and kids were coming back saying, I'm working with a guy that painted the targets uh, on the Spitfires in the Second World War. Oh, really? You know, the, you know, the, the emblems, they, that's how old the trade is. And, and that's how those guys were still working. I remember the place I worked at, the guys would ride their push bikes to work with their lunch boxes strapped on the back and they'd been doing that for years amazing and and you don't see that anywhere now i know but this was this isn't that long ago right ian you're no. not that old oh i'm 19 <laughs> no but we're talking about what the 1980s yeah yeah the 1980s <laughs> wow uh, so did you actually um do any sign painting did you i did but so... I was, and, I, and i think it's one of my biggest disappointments in life is that i wasn't very good uh, in what way a sign painter needs to be able to have a chalk line and snap two lines, one above each other, and then you get a China graph pencil and you roughly sketch what you want to paint. And this is called bash. They call it, we'll, but just bash it out. And they'll just paint. So freehand. Freehand. And I wasn't very good. I mean, to use a stencil would have been... Like yeah, beneath no. their dignity, right? You would have been making tea again if you got the, <laughs> if you said, "Charlie, I'm going to go and get the state the stencils." You'll say, "Boy, you go and make the tea again." <laughs> so there has to be someone making the tea for these yeah. tradesmen, and that was me. For <laughs> I only made the tea for fourteen years. But you're saying you would actually like make pots of tea, make for, pots for, of tea for working people, yeah, on the job. Everybody was working, and the the British drink a lot of tea, so. <laughs> You was making tea a lot, and that's about time for tea in a nipper. <laughs> and that's a vocation itself, being a tea boy or... Yeah, in big companies it was. Really? And, and now, of course, they got vending machines. Oh, that's sad. Yeah, it used to be a tea boy going around. But you wouldn't want to be, you know, let's say 50, 60 years old and still be a tea boy. No, but... No. But uh, sign painting didn't work out. Um, was there one day when you really had to paint an important sign and it just you just failed <laughs> i didn't think i was very good and i don't think i was uh there were there were wonderful sign painters that there still are 
and it's such a black art it's you've really got to look for a great sign painter or a sign writer and then then some bright spark invented a thing called a computer that cut self-adhesive vinyl lettering and overnight it changed the whole trade overnight you mean killed it oh killed it you still paint by the way I know I you paint. You paint houses. I do. You're like a lot of artists who get by, you know, by hook or by crook. So you have the day job, but your soul is in your singing and songwriting, yeah? That's what I think about most of the time. At what point did that become your passion? Well, I knew two brothers, and one played the drums and one played the bass. They had a little band, which was drum and bass before the drum and bass thing, but they weren't that kind of drum and bass. And they asked me to be the singer, and they wrote the songs, and I had to sing the songs, and after about the third rehearsal, wondered where the guitarist was, because there wasn't one, and I didn't particularly like the songs. Then uh, they recruited a guitarist, and then I thought, I'd like to have a stab at this myself. That month, I had got a credit card, the first ever credit card with about a £300 limit on it. And I thought, I need to go and buy a guitar. Uh, I had one from a child, which really wasn't uh, that playable. Oh, you're pointing. Um, we're that, in your studio, by the way. Yeah, and that's the small little Spanish-styled guitar. Right, it's uh, really small. Yeah, and that that's that that's the one my, you had as a kid that's my first guitar Aww. and i've written songs on that wow so i had to go and buy a guitar so i remember the day vividly i got on the tube train and i went to harrow wield a place just a few stops up from where they ended the tube line and i went into a music shop and i said to the guy i know nothing about guitars and i want to play the guitar and he was a cool guy, and he said, well, i tell you what to do, young fella. Walk around and tell me what guitar you really like the look of. And he said, i tell you why that is. He said, because if you pick a guitar that you love the look of, when it's on the stand in your bedroom, you'll want to pick it up. If you pick an ugly guitar up that you don't like you're not going to be wanting to play it that much. So I walked out of there that Saturday afternoon with a 1957 Martin Coletti, and it was an F-hold uh, 50s beautiful guitar, arch top, and it was about £275, and back then it was a huge amount of money. But it was true. I learned to play the guitar on that mm. guitar, and I still have that guitar it hangs on the wall and I walk in and I just sometimes just have to take it down and play it. So wherever uh, that guy is who ran that shop, I owe him a cold drink. <laughs> it's funny that his advice was based on the looks of the guitar, not the sound of the guitar. And it played terribly. <laughs> and it played terribly. So what do you think of that advice? Choose it for appearances sake. Well, I think there's something in it. I honestly think there's something in it. I mean, you look at people's footwear and some people say, these are the most comfortable shoes I've ever had. And I said, yeah, have you, have you taken a look at them though? <laughs> but 
but you could see people with you know something that they love the look of and you can say to them that they weren't they that wasn't a comfortable choice was it but i know you love those shoes <laughs> and that's you know the guitar for the singer songwriter for the rock and roller it's more than a sound producing device it is. It's this personality enhancer. It <laughs> is. <laughs> when you're standing in front of people and holding this thing, it makes you bigger, you know? There's it, something, the aura around a guitar is like enormous, you know, the right guitar. It is. I, I never felt comfortable playing an electric guitar. Ah. They're heavy. They they feel hard to me. They're, they, they're so hard and heavy, yet the strings are so light. I, I it felt It doesn't feel right to me an acoustic guitar has always felt right uh even that arch top martin galetti feels right it feels it feels acoustic-y in my hands and i can't see me playing an electric guitar anytime soon obviously you grew up listening to music so you probably had some idols some guitar heroes somebody you know whose work you were influenced by the Smiths. <laughs> the Smiths. I think the Smiths, because a religious thing to do as a, a British teenager was watch Top of the Pops. And it doesn't matter what you were doing, Top of the Pops was on. And one day I sat down and I watched Top of the Pops and there's a guy with gladioli out of his back pocket and... <laughs> Uh, National House Spectacles, the same spectacles that made me a very fast runner. Uh. <laughs> and and I and then there's this guy. And he's a sensitive type. And he was a sensitive type of guy. <laughs> and then there's a guy next to him playing the most beautiful guitar in ever, mm. Johnny Marr. And mm. and it really was a thing that yeah, how'd you join that club? Uh. How'd you join that club? I was going to ask you if there's any Morrissey influence. Um. Why don't we hear another song? Uh, do you have another one off the new album you could play for us? Sure. I hit the canvas hard Slept like a baby through the counts Should I've got up to fight Sick of confrontation for once And as the punches rain in It's only for it Say. And if you say that I'm lost But don't ask for directions today So hand me the mirror So I can see clearer just what I, oh, oh, did I become, oh, 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 did I 
Now the corner boys have gone They piled in a cab for central London The last thing the cut man said Said you got wounds that won't heal in your head And as the punches rain in It's only forever, you say And if you say that I'm lost But don't ask for directions today So hand me the mirror so I can see clearer Just what I Oh, all oh, that I become Oh, all oh, that I That was Hand Me The Mirror. You ever been beaten up like that? No. That song's a, more of a, an emotional beating, even though I had to put it into uh, the, uh, in the ring, as they say. Uh, yeah. But uh, no, I haven't. But you know something about it. I do. I think it's when you're just beaten down and you, you don't want to get up anymore and you're just, well, I'm over this now. So, But uh, I, I like that song. It's, uh, it's nice to play. It's nice to play. Tell me about where that song came from, though, and, and this idea of Hand Me the Mirror. Well, I think, I think it comes from changing as a person. I think it comes from being one person, going into something and completely changing and coming out a completely different person and not really knowing who you are. And you're saying to somebody close to you, uh, well, just, you know, let me take a look in that mirror and, you know, who am I now? because uh, I wasn't the same person when I went in. You know, so I, I should imagine it's about a relationship. That's what I figured. Um, we were talking about where you grew up. Tell me again the name of the... Well, it was the London Borough of Hillingdon. So on the outskirts of London, working class, a place where if a car was left for more than a few days, it would be set afire. It would. <laughs> it would. I'm thinking that most of the people there probably never went very far from there, right? No, I don't think too many people did. Um, uh, and it was amazing when uh, you met somebody that did go somewhere pretty far. I mean... But you did. And was it 2002 that you came to the US? Uh, yes, it was, 2002. But you and I have talked before. Uh, as I said, early in the interview, um, we met at a party, got to talking, and that's why we're doing this interview today. You told me that you had really dreamed of the U.S. for a long time. 
I had. It, it was um, the first time I ever came here was on vacation, and I was uh, 21 years old, and it really bowled me over. And I'd always watched the Rockford Files, or I'd always <laughs> watched Happy Days, or I always watched, you know, Paul Newman movies, and. And I just thought, I've got to go and take a look at what America's about. So I came when I was 21 for a vacation. Where'd you go? I went, I went to Gracelands to see where Elvis was buried. <laughs> was that, that was like your first stop, Memphis? No, it was Boston. Okay. I, I, stopped, I, stopped, I had a stop over at Boston, and I, and I walked out of the airport before the massive security uh, purge was on after 9-11. Uh, so, and I walked out in the car, car park or the parking lot, and... Uh, I just thought, man, I'm I'm not at home, right? And it was, uh, you know, it just affected me. And I think I've always thought different countries smell different ways. <laughs> and of course, in politics, people will say that that's true in a bad way. But I've always thought that there's a smell about America and the whole country or different parts of it. Come I, on, I think. When you get off that aeroplane, you've been sitting there for 10 hours eating those like tiny little meals and you walk off and you go through passport control and you get to the other end. It smells different. Uh-huh. And I, I always remember that smell of America. And, and I've been here now 10 years, 11 years. And now and again, I still smell it. And I think it's, I think for me, it's great. I, what is it? What's the smell? I, I don't know. It just, I don't know. For me personally, it smells like victory. I, 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 <laughs> I've I've figured out a place that I wanted to live, but it took me it took me twenty years to get back. It it just took a long time to get back. And uh I came to Boston uh on vacation and I went to Gracelands and then I went to uh see where James Dean was buried as well and got back on the aeroplane, came back and got a piece of paper out and thought, Well, how do I get back here for good? And it took twenty years. Because life t- took over, and I was in various bands in London, and uh, you know, and I always thought that if anything happened uh, musically, then I'd get back here one way or the other, and uh, that didn't happen. So uh, I had to hatch a plan. So you, you know, you knew America through basically through our propaganda, through our movies, our TV shows, sure, a lot of fantasy stuff. Yes, I mean. You went to Graceland and to James Dean's grave. Two legends, two larger-than-life figures. But real life here, Ian, as you know, is not a movie. It isn't. So when when you got here, you weren't disappointed, though? Uh, no, I don't think I was. Uh, I was disappointed on the minimum wage that I was earning. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't disappointed in anything. I, I, I just enjoy it. I, I guess I'm so, I, I really want to understand this. So how did America live up to your fantasies? I just felt as if, personally for me, it's tailored to my needs. And I haven't even got a television set. Ah, but w- what needs are we talking about then? Uh, I, I like the weather. I like... I like the scenery where we live. We're lucky to live on the coast. It's beautiful. Yeah, we should say that you you wound up here in Santa Cruz, California, so not just any old place in America. No, I got lucky. (laughs) I got really lucky. But something about that first trip where you went to Boston, Memphis, and where's James Dean buried? I think he's Indiana. Indiana. So you went to those three locations, and you were still pretty wild by the U.S.? I was, yeah. Yeah. 
And so, I hadn't been to California, and it was right. a few years. I'd right. go back to England, save up uh, a few pounds, and in two years come back for another vacation. And then, uh, and once uh, one vacation, I came to California, and I just thought, man, this is great. I San Francisco and L.A., and it was it was great. Palm trees. Well, it is understandable. I mean, I've got this vague image of the place you grew up. You know, probably gray, right? Gray skies, gray, gray scenery, gray architecture. Uh, not so much gray skies all the time. No. Uh, when I lived in San Francisco, and uh, there was a lot of fog in San Francisco, That's true. and people would say to me, "But you're used to this. You live in London." <laughs> but of course, I didn't tell them it was the outskirts of right. London where the train line stopped. Uh, and there was a lot. Of, there's a lot of brick. Yeah. Uh, in England, a lot of things made out of brick, and mm. uh, like, I guess like the East Coast, there's mm-hmm. a lot of brick out there. So uh, it was a, for me personally, it was a, it was a little grey for me. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. Uh, each to their own. I know a lot of people that are really happy with that. But I, I just watched one too many uh, Paul Newman movies. <laughs> I think you told me that you didn't you have a car? Didn't you have an American car? I did. What'd you have? I had a 55 Cadillac Coupe de Ville. Wow. And uh, I purchased it from a guy in San Diego that got it from a wreckers yard. And he shipped it back to England. And I purchased it off of him. Uh, And then I spent probably three years getting it back into a roadworthy condition. And when I came to America to live, I shipped it to uh, Galveston. And it arrived on Galveston a few days after the 4th of July, and I got in it and uh, got all the stuff that I'd stashed under the seat, all my tools and foot pumps and maps, and got all that out, started it up, and drove to California. How did you keep that car from being vandalized back in England? (laughs) Well, it did get vandalized. Uh, Some kids jumped over the fence and broke into it and snapped all the uh, uh, turn signal uh, stuff off it. And I think they peed in it. Oh, jeez. Yeah, it was rough. Was there a lot of jealousy, you driving that car around? Well, I think a lot of people uh, didn't really know where I was coming from. There's a lot of American, cool American cars in Europe now. And... uh, a lot more now, even in the last 10 years. But, uh, yeah, it, mine was battered up. It looked as if, uh, it looked like the one in, you know, I know it was a Plymouth, but it looked a little bit like the Christine one after the fire. It was <laughs> the Plymouth after the fire because it wasn't a shiny car. Okay. So it wasn't one of these cherry, you know, no. restored vintage cars. No. Okay. But still, you were a guy who dreamed of America. I did. Had the American car, the classic American car. Probably had some other American affectations. Yeah, I wore Levi's. That's what I was thinking. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and listened to American music. Of course, a lot of people in England did. Not yeah. unusual. Did people want to take the piss out of you, though? Did they want to, like, puncture that? You get a fair amount of uh, friction, <laughs> I think. I, I, I think people that are into that kind of thing usually stick together in groups. So you had friends who were also thinking about it? Yeah, I, I think a lot of people in the little social circle that I used to hang around in would have liked to have 
you know, come to America. And I, for me personally, I thought I only live once, so I've got to really make the most of it. And I took the ball by the horns and, and did what I wanted to do. And it was a huge thing to do. It was a huge thing to do. But I got lucky because I, I had a telephone number from a guy who lived in Monterey, of all places, and I, I lived in Monterey, I lived in San Francisco, and I've lived in Santa Cruz, and that's a pretty lucky mm. three places to live on the West Coast. And even though you came in the 2000s, <laughs> in the aughts, which is not, I think most people would say, America's glory years. I mean, you came during a time of economic decline. Um, you came in a time of war. I did. But it's still, you're still happy to be here? It still seems like a good choice? For me, for me personally, it does. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm happy here. And I've, I've written some of the best songs that I've written here. And... and you know ideas keep coming and some they sometimes they come fast and sometimes you don't get anything for like a month and i think with the songs that i have written if i couldn't write another song with the catalog that i haven't recorded yet i'd be quite happy with the ones i've got you know as you sit there we're in your studio your small studio and behind you is like a bulletin board with a bunch of three by five cards tacked to the board. And there's one column that has your recorded songs. But then as we move to the right, we have obviously songs that haven't been recorded yet. And there's multiple columns of them. I'm looking at the titles. There's a couple dozen songs there. Yeah, all in all, there's, uh, I think I've got, uh, I've got eight more albums written. Wow. Yeah, and they're all... Uh, they're, it's everything that I think's worthy of a song that I've remembered, I've written down, I've got on a dictaphone, I know how to play there. I just had a period where I just kept writing and I would be writing all the time and, and, and once an idea comes to me, everything stops. I've got to get it down it's so important to get the song down it's everything stops i've written songs on sandpaper i've written <laughs> songs on napkins as songwriters do it's I, i'm no new thing to this but uh yeah and then bodies of works come and they they sit in these groups and like red wine and tears my new album is is a fairly older songs and i I, I thought about stepping over them because I'm I'm writing songs of today and last year and should I should I be recording these but I I thought if I was to miss these songs and step over them my whole musical catalog would be unstable because it wouldn't be built strong enough from the songs that took me to the songs I'm writing today and that's what Red Wine and Tears was, and and I recorded it in this studio, and I uploaded the wave files to a studio in San Francisco, and they mixed and mastered them, and uh, that's that's the product, and mm. I'm really happy I did that now, mm. and I, and and I I think that 
to have lost those songs or been too hasty in recording what I've written now would have been a bad move. Hmm. Those songs of yours that are about other people, that are about actual people you've known or people you've overheard talking, right? Or you've picked up a little piece of someone else's life and you're going to put it in song form. Why, why is that the way you want to tell that story as opposed to, say, just talking to someone else or maybe writing it as a short story? Why do you want to do it as a song? Uh, I just don't like writing down stuff too much, I think. <laughs> I, I think a song's short and it's, well, supposedly short. Well, what does it do when you tell someone else's story in a, in a song? In a sense, you make it yours too. It's your music. You do. There's a couple of songs that I've written that I've completely made up, but just using one idea of from somebody, you know, an elderly person that took a secret to their grave. I mean, that happens a lot. And I thought, well, man, you you know, you're taking this to your grave, so nobody will know who was whose father or you know who you really are and then i and i thought wow that's a that's a a heavy thing to take to your grave and a sad thing and so i i think well, that's the subject you know i feel compelled to write about that and and i and then i just kind of just limber it up a little bit and, and figure out how i can make a song out of that do you have a, a song that fits that description i do but i haven't i haven't recorded it what you just told us about it, an older person taking a secret to their grave, is this a particular story, a real a real one, someone you know? Yeah, there's, there was somebody who uh, was in our family who, back in England that had some kind of secret and nobody ever really knew. Who's the father of her daughter? Who's uh. the father? Yeah, so... And it was always kind of intriguing to me uh, that... You know, everybody, it was like the elephant in the room type of thing. But, um, so I had to get to work on that. Well, Ian, I think it's time for another song, if not the one that you just spoke about that's still in the works, uh, one off your most recent album. In fact, let's hear the title song, Red Wine and Tears. Thanks very much. Pulled apart like a cork From the bottle The glasses were cracked Unsavable Dark cherry red flows Where love should reside the taste fakes your tears Your eyes open wide Now I'm thinking What I, I am doing here I lost the life raft of corks That I had been collecting for years Drunk kicking and 
salt and the sediment is when I stop moving you know that I drowned in your red wine and tears I drowned in your red wine and tears Sick of the taste of wine and your tears. So, Red Wine and Tears, that is the title track off your latest album, Ian. It is. And uh, we heard an excerpt. So, talk about that song. That song is, in fact, about me. Uh, that song is about a, a painful relationship that uh, I had. And you've got to have one, uh, I guess they say. And uh, in, I guess in my mind, I was just the one collecting all the corks so I could make a raft and float away because there was a fair amount of corks <laughs> from uh, wine bottles. But... Uh, and that's the that's the premise of the song. It's uh, it's a pretty sad song. So how is it to be from a country where people are supposed to be stoic, keep the old stiff upper lip and all of that, and to be such an expressive, emotional singer-songwriter? Well, I, I'm not really known there at all for that. and uh, For what? For for being a uh, I don't know a deep songwriter uh, in England, uh, I've done most of my creative work in in America when I left. Ah, I think what it was was changed. There was a period in my life when I I couldn't really string a couple of chords together or write a song because I had nothing to write about. Uh, I felt that it was a day in day out affair of life, and nothing really changed. I had to make a change in my life to write about a change. So I needed a change and I made a change and then everything came to life. Coming to the US kind of opened you up as a songwriter, you're saying? I think that it certainly helped. Huh. I, I felt a little stagnant at periods songwriting in England. I, I didn't seemed to have any flair i i was slowly dwindling but what's interesting is that they're not american songs they're very english songs and when i left things came up from the past because you shake your world up when you have a big change and all this creativity came to me that, man, I remember that when that happened. That was interesting. How did I forget that? Let's write it down. What about so-and-so? That happened. Remember they left so-and-so and they went there and so-and-so died and I forgot that. Why did I forget that? And I, I think our lives are like snow globes. 
and the snow settles and it can settle for a long time and sometimes you just need to really shake it up and you think man look at all this stuff floating around i never knew i had this much floating around what about the emotional tone i mean these aren't mostly cheerful songs no and i feel bad about that sometimes (laughs) because i know people may differ but i'm not that miserable you know you'd think (laughs) if you listen to the songs you might man he's miserable let's not invite him around for a dinner party but uh i find there's something powerful about it there are songs that i've got lined up that are are really upbeat powerful songs about how people have changed their lives Mm. did i understand right when we were talking earlier about the fact that you you didn't really take up the guitar seriously and writing songs until what like early 20s about 19 to 20 i started messing around with stuff but at some point you went from someone who didn't write songs to someone who dabbled in it to someone who you're you're always writing songs right i'm always writing songs when, when they when they come but you're always thinking about songs i am all all the time always always thinking about the songs my wife, before we were married, she said, you've got to do something about these songs you write. And I said, well, you know, what do I do? And she said, well, just just start doing something, start playing, start recording. You've got to do something. So I gave it an awful lot of thought, and I, this is my life's work. And when I kick the bucket, whenever that will be, I want to have everything in order that this is what I did. And if people like it, that is really great. And if I could earn a living off of it, that is e- that's great. But if I can't, I've just got to lay these CDs out in a line and say, this is what I did. Some people raise crops on a land. Some people could write books. Some people could save people's lives and some people write songs and i write songs what is a song i have no idea (laughs) no idea no idea what it is really because it's it's just for me personally a an acoustic guitar and a voice is a hugely powerful powerful thing and any instrument and a, and a voice is a powerful, powerful thing. And the bands are great. Music, big bands, drums, bass. It's all great. It's music. It's wonderful. But there is something so powerful and organic and raw about a human being singing a song. Well, Ian, um, I really want to thank you for doing this. We've been talking about it for a while, so I'm glad we finally got together. And um, I thought maybe we'd go out on one last song. Sure, this is called Last in the Family Line. This is from your new CD, Red Wine and Tears. Yes, and I'd like to thank you for having me on the show, Robert. It's been a real honor. Thank you. Thank you. get to the other side 
I will burn all my bridges and hide But my matches were damp And they would not ignite Spent the evening raking over footprints Before light, see I'm a dog Chasing its tail Spinning like a Catherine wheel I, I heard what you said But I can't remember a shred So tell me again why I'm not the same I'm just this sun And I'm kicking out rays Please tell me again Go ahead, it's fine Am I the last in the family line? Am I the last in the family line. And you can learn more about Ian Bell and his music at his website, ianbellacoustic.com. You can learn more about this radio show, 7th Avenue Project, at our website, 7thAvenueProject.com. I'm Robert Polly. I will return next week. I know what I'm doing. Oh, I've been on this for days But I, I can't remember a thing But I do know where I've been See, I'm a dog chasing its tail Like a Catherine wheel I, I heard what you said But I can't remember a shred So tell me again Why I'm not the same I'm just this son and I'm kicking out rays Please tell me again Go ahead, it's fine Am I the last in the family line? Oh, am I the last in the family line? in the family line
Thanks.